Dunlap, Secretary of State for the State of Maine. I spoke to Matt Dunlap by phone on April 21st, 2020. Welcome, Matt Dunlap. Hello, Cynthia Dell. Thank you so much for joining my show. I know you're a very busy guy. In fact, uh, just this morning, you made some news with the drawing of the bond question. Please tell listeners um, what question is going to appear first on the ballot in June. Well, well, sure. Uh, it's actually kind of a, of a fun thing to do. And, and when we're not locked down, we always like to have you know, kids come. And we'll all sometimes have one of the children draw the ballot order just for the fun of it. Um, and we always designate them as a deputy secretary of state for youth engagement for the moment. Um, <laughs> but uh, because it was just me and Julie Flynn, uh, we had two questions and uh, we, we jumbled them around as best we could. She picked one out of my hand and that question one will be the broadband initiative, the $15 million bond that leverages like another $30, $35 million in federal and private funds. So question two will be the transportation bond. Uh, that's how we do it. We do a random drawing. It's a lot of fun. And these bond questions will appear on the ballot. I said June, but that's actually a mistake. It's been extended to July 14th. Yeah, I was on a radio show yesterday, and I don't know how many times I said the June primary, which actually is July 14th, Bastille Day, will be our primary. And that's when these bond questions will be decided by the voters. Now, Matt, you are um, in charge of a nonpartisan office, but are a Democrat by party affiliation. And so this is kind of a political question. Um, the Republicans are a minority, really, when it comes to um, a political party. And yet they have, um, you know, won the Electoral College. Of course, we have President Trump. There's a majority of Republican senators in the United States Senate. And 26 governor's mansions are... Um, held by Republicans. So, Matt, my first question to you as the person in charge of elections and just as a national figure, um, why do you think that is? Why are Republicans in charge, even though they represent what is essentially a minority when it comes to party, you know, um, population and membership? Well, the, the issue of the Electoral College is a constitutional issue, and it was framed up that way intentionally. Of course, the demographics of the country were much different in 1789 than they are today, but there still was a lot of mistrust between the urban centers and the rural areas of, of young America. And I think the concern, as articulated, uh, and it's great reading, by the way, if you ever, going even beyond the Federalist Papers, um, to read some of the debates that were published in the newspapers about the Constitution. And they talked about the distrust that they had for the urban centers of Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, um, against the backdrop of the more rural areas, uh, you know, like Virginia, uh, Georgia, the Carolinas, and, and how they would be basically, the country would be run by the cities. And the solution was twofold. The Connecticut Compromise, which created the bicameral federal legislature that we have today where you have the senate representing the states and the house representing the people apportioned by population and it's unique in the constitutional i'm not a, and i'm not a lawyer let me just be clear about that no self-respecting law school would ever send me a course catalog but i've been around this stuff a long time and i've, I've come to understand it a little bit so you know the way congress is structured and the, and the electoral college is a complete mirror of that the electoral college 
is made up of the same number of voters as the number of representatives and senators. And they're broken out the same way. So Maine has four electoral votes. We're one of two states that can actually split our votes. California has like, you know, something like 50. Uh, Maine has two, uh, four rather, four, two senators and, and two House members. And I think really it, the essence of your question is the Republicans understand those mechanisms in a very fundamental way. And one of the things I've been doing is beating a drum this year, trying to get people to fill out their census forms. Right. Because the census, the census form is the essential building block of political power. And the census is what you get. You get those maps from the census, and that's what the redistricting commission, the apportionment commission, which will be seated next year, will use to draw legislative districts for county commission seats, the main house, the main senate, and the two congressional districts will be drawn using those maps. And if people don't fill out the census, they're not going to be counted. In the worst case scenario, we could actually lose a congressional seat. And historically, the Republicans have been very, very astute at redistricting. And some might call it those... gerrymandering. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, they've they've been very they're very smart. Uh, you know, I remember back uh, it was sometime uh, after the two thousand one redistricting. We did it in two thousand three. The election turned the Republicans' way in Texas, and uh, they went ahead and did another redistricting and basically undid everything that the previous legislature, a democratically controlled legislature, had done. Supreme Court said, nothing says you can't redistrict more than every 10 years. You just have to do it at least every 10 years. So I think the Republican Party has been very astute in how they've executed some of those real strategic moves around drawing legislative districts, uh, where so you wind up in a situation in many states like you know, take Texas, for example. Um, Texas is not a, a liberal bastion, but they have elected Democrats in the past, um, but it's nowhere near, uh, as sw- it's much more of a swing state than it would appear by the electoral results, to your point. And I think that's why, is that they're better at that sort of thing than we are. We're very good at grassroots campaigning, uh, reaching out to the public, um, but when a district is already slanted with a 65% Republican enrollment advantage, it's very, it's really tough to make an inroad there. Another reason some might argue Republicans had success is um, the uh, appearance on the ballot of third party candidates. For instance, in 2016, um, the Libertarian and Green Party candidates took in some um, areas up to 5% of the vote and really made the difference. I'm thinking like in Michigan between Hillary Clinton and um, Donald Trump. My first question is, do we have any third party candidates that have uh, fulfilled the requirements to appear on the ballot for the presidential election in 2020? Not yet. Um, those requirements for non-party candidates, they're not due in till July 1st. So we won't know till after that what we have for independents and third parties. In Maine, uh, we have ranked choice voting, and recently the legislature enacted ranked choice voting for the presidential election as well. Uh, we did not use it for the primary because the governor let it become law without her signature, so it doesn't take effect until later this summer. But um, we will have it in place pending the outcome of submission of signatures for a people's veto by the state Republican Party 
to stop the use of ranked choice voting in Maine um, for the presidential election. But the, the ranked choice voting, you know, if no matter how you feel about it, uh, prospectively or objectively, um, it does remove this spoiler effect. And back when I was in the legislature, the Green Party was an open collusion with Republicans because the Republicans would actually organize for them. They'd help them recruit candidates, help them get signatures, uh, get them qualified for the ballot, help them with their public financing, specifically in areas that a Republican might have a hard time head-to-head with a Democrat. You get a Green Party candidate in there, and that Green Party candidate and the Democrat would split the vote, and the Republican would wind up getting elected. So it was... It's, it's a little cynical, to say the least, but like I say, they're pretty good at it. Well, that explains why Republicans are opposed to ranked choice voting, but I'm wondering if Republicans will encourage um, like you and others to make it easier for third parties so they can get on the ballot. There was a couple stories recently, um, states um, sort of acknowledging the difficulty the coronavirus presents to petition signature gathering and so have waived requirements or have allowed third-party candidates to use electronic signatures. Do you see, is there any writing on the wall that, that there'll be some easing of the regulations on, on ballot access for third parties? Uh, the only We actually have taken a move on, along that line. The statutory deadline for non-party independent candidates to submit signatures is June 1st, and that's been pushed out a month for this very reason. Uh, we have not gone in the direction of electronic signatures or waiving signature requirements. And you're an attorney, and this will make sense to you, um, because the party candidates have already filed. Their deadline was March 16th, and they met all the requirements. So independent candidates have more time. They have to get twice as many signatures, but they have twice as much time in the law, and we've extended that. You start lessening those requirements even more, you start getting into an equal protections discussion about candidates on the ballot, and uh, I think we can get away with extending the deadline. I don't think we could get away legally with doing a lot more than that at this at this juncture. So I think uh, it is what it is for them. Another big issue that uh, Maine um, deals with all the time is term limits. Um, you yourself are going to um, be termed out as Secretary of State. Uh, because of a ballot question that was um, passed in 1993 um, that became law. My question to you is, do you you now believe that term limits is a bad idea? Do you support term limits? What's your perspective now that you have been in an office and nationally recognized as an expert in your field? Do you wish there were no term limits? Well, I, I really do love my work. There's no question about that. I'm, I'm very, very lucky. I mean, not one person in 10 million gets to do what I've gotten to do. And the most gratifying part of it is being able to help people, never mind what you get recognized for or not. Um, but term limits, I've always thought term limits was a bad idea. And the fullness of the experience in Maine and other states that have term limits really demonstrates why. And it's not so much that you have experienced people like, I have 14 years in the aggregate as Secretary of State. I'm the second longest serving Secretary of State in, Amer- in, in Maine history. Um, so, you know, and that's because I was running for a fourth term, and then the Republicans took over the legislature. I'm one of three secretaries that are elected by legislatures. So, you know, I've been able to have a lengthy career in the time of term limits, ironically enough, but I was termed out of the House. 
Um, and what you see term limits doing, it works precisely the way it was designed to work. And it wasn't designed to get experienced people out because, you know, they come back. You know, uh, Governor Mills and I came back as constitutional officers together in, in 2012 in that, that election and started again in 2013. And uh, Governor Mills famously quipped that, you know, Secretary Dunlap and I are living proof that Maine believes in recycling. And that's, <laughs> you see that a lot with term limits. People who are in, they get out, they, they run for the other chamber or they run for another office, they come back, they take some time off, come back. That's not the effect of term limits. Where, effective, where term limits has really been effective and has really damaged the institution is what it was targeted at, and that is legislative leadership. I mean, John Martin, the 18-year Speaker of the House in Maine, was the poster child for term limits. And people often still cite him when they talk about term limits. He had that calcified leadership, people in just way too long. So, you know, now, ironically, and, I, and actually there was a, an article that was written about me when I was chair of the Fish and Wildlife Committee about how I was a shining example of why term limits was a bad idea. Because here you have somebody in an incredibly important role with utterly no experience and no clue about what he's doing. <laughs> now, I was kind of offended by that at the time, but in hindsight, it was spot on. I made a lot of stupid mistakes as a first-term chair, and I was only in my second term in the House. And that's what you see now. It used to be you'd serve 10 years before you became a committee chair. And people who ascended to the roles of whip, of floor leader, of speaker, did so after years of demonstration in the fluency of that process. And the most frequently heard sentence you hear from the rostrum today is, the chair is an error. <laughs> Nobody knows the process anymore. And who knows the process? It's the lobby. Those experienced former legislators who can help their clients navigate the process and just completely outflank the very legislators who are supposed to be the guardians of the public trust. And I think that's where term limits has really harmed the institution of government. Matt Dunlap, last question. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? I don't really have an answer to that. I mean, this was supposed to be my valedictory lap in my last year as Secretary of State. I was supposed to be going around thanking all my staff and the branch offices. And right now, you know, we're at the gates of Troy um, <laughs> facing the coronavirus epidemic and trying to serve the public and maintain some semblance of normalcy. I don't know what's next. I'm hopeful that it is some job that is very innocuous, that has absolutely no public visibility, uh, that pays okay, and that I feel like I'm actually helping somebody get something done. And if that means picking cans out of the trash, I'm all in. So we don't know yet. Well, Matt Dunlap, I'm excited to see what happens. And I thank you very much for joining the show. All right. Have a great day. Take care. You too.